All right, imagine with me this morning. You've been invited to a party. Just let your, let your mind go with this, this scenario this morning. You've been invited to a party. It's a birthday party. And your host is throwing a lavish shindig. There's all kinds of food. There's all kinds of drink. And there's also all kinds of guests. This is a big, big deal. And as you look around, you begin to wonder, is there going to be enough food to go around for all of these people? Will your host replenish the food throughout the party, or do you need to grab enough to fill yourself up in the short term? You with me? You're not really sure what's ahead, and so you make a decision, you gather some of your closest friends who are at the party, and you barricade yourselves into the family room, but before you run into the family room, you grab as many trays of hors d'oeuvres as you can, and you run into the family room with those and barricade the door. What has just happened? You have stopped trusting your host to provide. Now, you're in that room. You're thinking to yourself, the food is disappearing fast. There's a whole lot of people. The host hasn't shown up yet. You're really hungry. And you decided you can't really trust your host. We'll come back to this party in just a minute. But first of all, let me catch you up if you're joining us for the first time in this series today. We're in a message series called Plenty. This is week three. Last week, I shared with you about the mindset of plenty. We can have a mindset that says there's always going to be plenty for me, or we can have a mindset of scarcity in which we believe there's never going to be enough. And last week, I shared two Ps of plenty with you. Do you remember if you were here? The two Ps were ponder and practice. And if you want to change your mindset from a mindset of scarcity to a mindset of plenty, you need to ponder the ravens, ponder what God has created, and then put into practice the disciplines of living with a plenty mindset. Today, I'm going to give you two new Ps in just a second. But first, this is our theme uh, theme verse for this message series, John 10.10, 10, Jesus speaking. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. Everybody say abundantly. According to Jesus, God is for you. God is interested in your life. God is interested in your abundance. He wants you to have plenty. He wants you to have a plenty mindset. And so here's two Ps that I want you to remember today. All right, you ready for these two Ps? God provided plenty and God promises plenty. Now pay attention to the tenses of those two verbs. God provided plenty past tense. If you look back in your life, you can probably see that consistently over your life, there has been provision for you. Maybe God hasn't been 
early in making provision for you, but you can probably say with me, he's never been late. There's been provision, and there's probably been struggle, there's probably been some hard times, but God has provided in the past. And then the other P, the first P is provided, the other P is promises. God promises you plenty in your future. And I want you to remember this today, that God provided in the past and he promises in the future and there is plenty for you if you trust him. Will you trust him? Or will you be that guy that hoards the hors d'oeuvres and barricades himself in the family room with a few of his friends? You have a choice, trust or distrust. Here's the struggle. For all of us, temptation enters the scene and asks this question, can you really trust God to provide plenty? Has anybody ever asked that question? Is it just me? Okay. Um, Just like Kelly, I'm wondering if I'm just yelling at myself. (laughs) Can I really trust God to provide plenty? And that question is a downward spiral that happens to all of us when we entertain temptation. This is how it goes. It starts with doubt. It starts with that question, did God really say? Is God really going to pull through for me? It's doubt. And then that spiral continues when we entertain deceit. We are tempted to believe a lie. Maybe the lie is God really isn't good Maybe the lie is God doesn't exist. Maybe the lie is God doesn't really love me. I see that he loves everybody else, but he doesn't really love me. We believe a lie, and the spiral goes from doubt to deceit. And then if you continue to entertain that temptation, you're going to grab everything you can, like that hors d'oeuvres plate, and you're going to keep it for yourself. You're going to say no to God's provision, no to God's promises, and you're going to find yourself in a place of disobedience. And the end of the story will be destruction. There's always some sense of destruction when I follow this spiral to its logical conclusion. It starts with doubt, continues with deceit, we disobey, and then there's some kind of destruction in our lives. Now, what we're going to see today is that from the very beginning, people have been struggling to trust God. From the very beginning, even though God is hosting us on this beautiful planet, my gosh, look, at, look out the windows and see this beautiful place and the goodness that God has provided us, especially living in the Gallatin Valley, man, You can look around and see God's amazing generosity and abundance, right? But from the very beginning, we've struggled to trust God. And and so what we're going to do here today is I want to take you to four accounts in Genesis. And, And I want you to see how this temptation to distrust God manifests again and again and again. And we're going to discover the key to why we don't trust God. And then we're going to end with a, with a, a story from, from 1 Kings, in which we, or 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, where we're going to see how we can help ourselves to remember. Now, just fair warning. If you've got note cards this morning, there's none up here. Do you have notes? 
If you look on your note cards, you're going to see that there's four, actually five sections. There's four sections from Genesis and then a section from 1 Samuel. Okay, we're going to spend a lot of time on Genesis chapter 3. And then we're going to fly through the other parts of Genesis. So when I spend 15 minutes on the first one in Genesis, don't freak out and think I'm going to preach for two hours. I promise I won't. Okay? We're just going to touch on, I want you to see that there's a pattern. There's a pattern. And we all tend to fall into the same pattern that started with Adam and Eve. Okay? That, that's, that's the way it works. We're all the same. There's nothing new under the sun. So do me a favor this morning, grab your Bible, if you brought a Bible, or grab a device, and I think it'll be helpful for you today if you follow along with me. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 3, and uh, if you're using a device, choose the NASB 20 version. That's the the version that I'm going to be using today. We'll start in Genesis chapter 3. You ready to go? Got Genesis chapter 3? One person is in Genesis chapter 3. The rest of you are still looking. All right, here we go. Genesis chapter 3. It's up on the screen too if you want to follow there. Right at the beginning of the chapter. Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, and we're just going to stop right there. Because, wait, what? A talking snake? Really? Okay. Talking snake. Let, let, let me just pause right here because I don't want anybody to get tripped up with this idea of a talking snake. Uh, we did a whole message series not long ago called Operation Bible, and we talked about what the Bible is and how to read it properly, and conversely, how not to read the Bible, okay? And one of the things that you need to know about the Bible is the Bible isn't just a book, it's actually a collection of 66 books all written by different authors over a span of many, many centuries. And what's beautiful about the Bible is is it's a unified story that finds its culmination in Jesus. It all points to Jesus, but each one of these books in the Bible has a different author, a different purpose, and if you really want to understand it, you have to kind of figure out some stuff about that part of the Bible. And so when we're talking about Genesis, you have to understand this is a record of events that happened thousands of years ago, and these events were communicated to Moses, who is the most probable author of this book, who was writing probably because God dictated it to him when he was on the mountain, okay? And so this is God communicating to us through Moses. And and you can read about this talking snake and you can believe that it's to be taken literally, which tends to be my default, because after all, if God wants to create a snake that talks, God can do that, right? But lots of people believe that the beginning part of Genesis is metaphorical and it's teaching us some important lessons about human nature and the origins of humankind. So whether you're a literalist or or if it's metaphor, don't get hung up on it today. What I want you to see here is there's a repeated pattern that is going to shed some light on why we struggle to trust God. Okay, so don't get hung up on the talking snake. You with me? Okay, man, I need you to talk back today. You with me? All right, thank you. Okay, the snake says to the woman, has God really said, you shall not eat from any tree 
of the garden. What's happening? Here's the downward spiral already starting, starting with doubt. Has God really said? Hmm. Eve's first mistake, obviously, was entertaining the temptation. And instead of walking away from the talking snake, Eve starts conversing with him. Have you ever conversed with your tempter? Okay. Here's what she said. Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now, lots of people get really hung up on this verse, this this statement of God, you can eat from any tree, but don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden or you're going to die. Because it kind of sounds like maybe God's giving a threat and maybe God is placing temptation. After all, the tree is right in the middle of the garden. You can't get away from it. It's right there. And and is God just looking to trip you up? Because if that's the nature of God, that's not a God that, that, that is really good, right? And a lot of people get really hung up right here. Or you can look at it differently. Maybe this warning from God is a promise that he is always looking out for our best interest, okay? Because how many of you know we need boundaries in our lives because if we just do whatever this human nature prompts us to do, we find ourselves in hot, hot water. Am I the only one? I need boundaries. And so really, this isn't so much a threat as it is a promise. If you will set a boundary for yourself, build a fence around that tree, listen, you're going to live. Don't cross the boundary, don't touch it, don't eat of that fruit. But the problem was, there was doubt that had already been planted in this woman's mind, and she entertained the temptation. The account account continues, verse four. The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. Now where are we at? Deceit. There's a lie. You won't die. He continues, for God knows on the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this is a very interesting verse, and I'm going to pause right here. I want you to notice something. That word knowing in that verse can be translated to mean the wisdom to define good and evil. What the serpent was saying to her is that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes are going to be opened, and you will have the wisdom that God has to define what is good and what is evil for yourself. It's more than just knowing. It's the power to decide. And this is part of this deception that the enemy brings in. Starts with doubt, but then he goes to this deception. A, you won't die, and B, you can decide what is good for yourself. You don't need God to tell you what's good and what's bad. See where we're going with this? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable 
to give one this wisdom to decide for oneself. She took some of its fruit, and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Did you notice that verse? Adam was with her the whole time. This account has been used to say that women are morally weaker than men. Um, I would argue that Adam was just as culpable as Eve was. There's no difference. And they went to this next step in this spiral of disobedience. And verse 7 says that the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. And what we see entering into the human race is shame for the first time. Shame, which is perhaps more destructive than the sentence of dying you will die that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. I don't know about you. I hate shame with everything that's within me. Shame kills us. Shame cripples us. Shame leads us into all kinds of self-harm and destructive behaviors. And so now, in this account, this downward spiral is complete. And the question I want to ask is this. Why did Adam and Eve make this choice instead of trusting God? I can ask the question of you and me. Why do we make this choice? Why, why don't we just trust God at what he says and go with it? Because we know this is true, that, that when we entertain temptation, it just takes us in this downward spiral. Here's the key, I believe, and it's buried in this text, and maybe you've never seen this before. It's in verse 6 that we read just a minute ago. If, if you mark in your Bible, I would mark this verse. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was attractive to her eyes, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Do you know what that word desirable means? In the Hebrew language, it's the word hamad. And it means to desire or to covet. It's the same word that's used in the Ten Commandments when God says, thou shalt not covet. She saw that the, the, the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and she coveted it. Let me give you a definition for the word covet, because this isn't a word we use very often. The word covet means to feel strong or immoderate desire for something that belongs to somebody else. That's what coveting is. It's when you look at something and you want it for yourself when it doesn't belong to you. What did Eve covet? What did Eve covet? The fruit, for sure, was the wisdom. Adam and Eve coveted God's wisdom to define good and evil. Adam and Eve coveted the power to decide what is right and wrong for themselves. Listen, don't we all wish we had the wisdom to define good and evil for ourselves? Don't we kind of take that into our hands from time to time ourselves? 
Some of us really believe we know better than God. I was trying to think of some examples. I mean, the, the, the examples of this are endless. I'll get in myself into trouble with, with some of you with this stuff. I'll wade in anyway. Jesus says we should pay our taxes. It's tax season, so this is obviously where I go. Jesus says we should pay our taxes. But man, the government is screwed up. Okay, so now see what happened? You amened when I said the government is screwed up, but nobody said amen when I said pay your taxes. <laughs> Which one did Jesus say? Jesus said pay your taxes. There you go. But it's so easy to make excuses and say, hey, I, mm, you know, I think I'm wiser than Jesus. No, we don't say that with our out loud voice. But we fudge a little here and there and we, we take some loopholes that don't really belong to us. And we, you hear what I'm saying? What about revenge? Somebody has hurt me. Somebody's hurt me real bad and I have an opportunity to stick it to them. What does Jesus say? He says, turn the other cheek. If somebody asks you to go a mile, go with them two miles. And, and by the way, when Jesus taught on this stuff, it was all in the context of oppression and, and, uh, and, and um, harm that was coming. Jesus said, just suffer the harm and give them a little bit extra. But it's easy to think, oh, I know better than Jesus. I'm gonna stick him in the ribs. What about sexuality? The Bible's really clear that, that our sexual expression is to be done in the context of, of marriage, but our culture says, that's really stupid. What's our culture say? Our culture said, says the Bible's just this old antiquated book that doesn't apply to us anymore. Our culture says you can have sex without consequences as long as nobody gets hurt. Our sex says consuming pornography is a victimless crime. It's just an, an innocent pleasure. All of those little statements are saying, we know better than God. And so we're gonna take the wisdom to define what is right and wrong into my own hands instead of letting God define what it is for me. Do you know what you're doing? You're believing the lie that's gonna lead to disobedience that's going to end in destruction. If you pay attention to your life, if you look back and remember in your life, if you ponder, I, I, I bet for all of us in this room, if you really ponder the times you stepped outside of the boundaries God made for you and you took the wisdom to define right and wrong into your own hands, didn't it end in destruction of some sort? Didn't it destroy a relationship somewhere along the line? Didn't it destroy your pocketbook somewhere along the line? Didn't it destroy your community or your home or some destruction comes when we define what is right and wrong for ourselves. 
But this is the temptation that all of us struggle with. And when we stop trusting God because we're coveting that wisdom, listen, we're going to find ourselves in trouble. And this is the pattern that we see throughout the book of Genesis. Now, I'm going to very quickly talk you through these other ones. But before we do, uh, let's go back to that birthday party because I don't want you, I, I don't want to leave you stuck there in, in the barricaded room with the hors d'oeuvres because there's more to this story. Aren't you excited? This is a great story. Okay, you're barricaded in the family room with your friends and the hors d'oeuvre trays. And then you smell steak. Steak is your favorite. And then you peek out the door and you see that your host has appeared and your host is bringing out a big old ribeye steak for the birthday boy. And it's about this thick and that steak is perfectly marbled and it's been seared and those fats and the juices have been caramelized. Am I making you hungry? You want that steak. But the problem is the steak is only for the birthday boy. There's no steak for anybody else. And you find yourself coveting that steak. Then your host goes back into the kitchen, and you sneak out of the family room, and you know what you do? You kill the birthday boy, because you coveted the steak. You didn't see that coming, did you? What just happened? You coveted what you did not have. Now, you think that's a ridiculous end to the story, but listen, this is the human story. When people stop trusting their host to provide plenty, the end result is hoarding. Why do you think people still to this day enslave other people? Because they don't believe there's enough to go around. And so we enslave other people. We take advantage of other people. We murder other people because we don't believe there's enough to go around. This is the human story that's been repeated over and over and over. And the first time we find is it is in Genesis chapter 4. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to go quick through this part. This is the story of two brothers, Cain and Abel. And you can, you can scan down through this story. I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning. But Cain and Abel are brothers, and they both bring offerings to the Lord. Uh, one brother brings an offering of produce from the land. The other brother brings the firstborn of his flocks from his from his livestock, and they both offer them to the Lord. It's kind of a thanks offering. It's a precursor of everything that would happen in, in tabernacle and temple worship. But what's, what happens here, and there's not a, a, a good explanation for why, so you can study that on your own, but for some reason, God favored Abel's offering, but he didn't favor Cain's offering. And so what Genesis 4 says in verse 5 is that Cain became very angry and his face was gloomy. And then the Lord came to Cain, and this is so critical. If you've got your Bibles open, it's verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face gloomy? If you do well, 
Will your face not be cheerful? And that literally could be translated, if you do will, if you do well, will not your face be lifted up? Meaning, what God was saying to Cain is there was some kind of defect in, in what you brought to the Lord. I don't know what the defect is, and it, it's not important. What God is saying is, if you do well, you're going to be exalted. You're going to be lifted up. There's a promise here for Cain. But what did Cain do? Many of you probably know the story. Cain went out into the field and he killed his brother, just like the guy that killed the birthday boy in our story. Because this is the end result of disobedience, is this kind of destruction. We take life into our own hands when we don't trust God to provide for us. And the problem is we stop trusting God when we covet what we don't have. What did Cain covet? Cain coveted Abel's success. Have you ever coveted somebody else's success? Have you ever coveted somebody else's job? Do you ever covet your neighbor's house? Or their boat? Or their guns? Listen, you might not be tempted to murder somebody, but lots of people do terrible things because they covet somebody else's success. People lie, they cheat, they steal, they hoard. Am I ringing anybody's bell here? We stop trusting God when we covet what we don't have. Let's go to the next story, Genesis 18 can flip over there in your Bible. This is the story of Abraham and Sarah. And man, this is a long story and I don't have time to go into much of it. I'm just gonna touch on it. Abraham and Sarah were old people, really, really old people, well past the childbearing years. And God came to Abraham and Sarah and he said, I'm gonna give you a son. Nothing they wanted more was than a son. They wanted children, they wanted grandchildren, they wanted descendants. And God promised them, I'm going to bring you a son. And so they trusted God, they believed God, and, and they were ready to go. But you know what? God got really, really slow. Really slow. Anybody ever gotten frustrated because God is slow? I've already asked that question this morning. Anybody frustrated this morning because God is slow, but you have a promise? So what did Abraham do? He went and, and did it with the servant girl to get a son. What was the end result of, of Abraham's sin? All kinds of destruction. There was all kinds of conflict in his family. Eventually God came through and Isaac was born and then Isaac and Ishmael hated each other and eventually God, uh, Abraham sent away the, the servant with her son and they ended up in abject poverty and if you, if you believe the ancient traditions, Ishmael went on to be the Arab people Isaac went on to be the Jewish people, and these nations have been in war in our world for thousands of years. Because Abraham coveted what he didn't have. What did he covet? He coveted descendants. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But he was unwilling to wait until God would bring him what he promised. And this is so important. This is so important this morning. Has God given you a promise? 
Maybe it's a promise that you found in the Bible and it just jumped off the page and you know this is your promise. Or maybe somebody has spoken a word of prophecy over you. I, I've shared with you many times that when Chris and I were going through, through infertility struggles, somebody prophesied over us that our children would be powerful in the kingdom. We hung on to that promise and we waited for God to fulfill the promise until Nikki came along. Listen, you can take things into your own hands and make it happen and what's going to happen? Destruction. Or you can wait for God to fulfill what he's already promised you. Is God faithful? Yes. But we stop trusting God when we covet what we don't have. This is a powerful principle, even if sometimes we're coveting something that's a good thing. Did you know you can covet something that's a good thing and it's not good? Can I just pause here and talk to religious people for a second? Now, if you're not a religious person, you don't have to listen to this. You can go ahead and check Facebook or whatever. Um, but you religious people that say, I covet your prayers, would you stop saying that? Because coveting is an immoderate desire for something that belongs to somebody else. And when you say, I covet your prayers, what you are saying is, I want you to stop praying for them and pray for me instead. Those prayers belong to somebody else. So if you need prayer, just come to somebody and drop the religious lingo and just say, will you please pray for me? Okay? I think religious lingo is stupid anyway. Okay, done with my rant. Last story. Genesis 25. This is the story of Jacob and Esau. These are twin brothers. Their mother is pregnant with twins. Has anybody had twins in the room? I think we have a couple of twins. Okay, all right. You remember what that felt like when those babies were fighting in your womb? Okay. <laughs> Michelle's leaning up. <laughs> it, yep, yep, yep. Okay, Jacob and Esau's mother is pregnant with twins and she goes to inquire of the Lord. I think that means she went to, to see a prophet and have a prophet tell her what was happening because, you know, back in those days there were no ultrasounds. Nobody could tell her what was going on. She just knew this was a terrible pregnancy, right? So she went to see a prophet, and the prophet said this, two nations are in your womb, two peoples will be separated from your body, one people will be stronger than the other. Now here's the promise from God, and the older will serve the younger. Now when they were born, Esau was born first, Jacob was born second, and Jacob had this promise that he was going to be the leader of these two of, of this family. Jacob was going to rise to leadership and Esau, even though he was the firstborn, was going to serve him. But the problem was in that culture, everything revolved around the firstborn son. So when dad was getting ready to die, there was this big ceremony to pass on the inheritance and all this kind of stuff. And Jacob didn't trust God to come through with his promise. So he lied and he deceived and he swindled his brother out of his birthright and his inheritance. What was it? It was disobedience. And again, it brought all kinds of destruction into their family. You can read the story for yourself if you've never read it. It's, it's a tragic story because Jacob didn't trust God and he coveted what he did not have. What did he covet? He coveted Esau's position. 
And, and, and listen, this is a hard one for a lot of us. You see somebody that you think is in a position that they aren't worthy of, you would be better at it. You'd do that job so much better. You could lead that family so much better. Whatever it is. We stop trusting God when we covet what we don't have. Now, let me just stop right here and give you a moment to think. What are you coveting? Would you just take a momentary inventory? What don't you have that you have this immoderate, I like that word, immoderate means that it's not in balance, it's overwhelming. You have an immoderate desire for something that you don't have. What is that for you? Maybe you want to even write that down in your notes. If you listen to doubt and you believe deceit and choose disobedience, there's going to be destruction in your life. You've got to trust God to come through with that thing. Now, go with me to 1 Samuel 7. This is where we're going to end. 1 Samuel 7 is a, is a cool chapter, and, and again, I'm not going to read very much of it. Let me give you the backstory. By the time we get here in the Bible, Israel has become a nation. They're living in the promised land. But they've fallen into disobedience against God. And, and the disobedience that they kept falling into was the worship of false gods. There were, there were gods in their culture, in the nation surrounding them. One of them was called Ashtoreth. Another one was called Baal. These were awful, awful cults. Uh, that, that a lot of times were, were uh, focused on fertility rights. There were temple prostitutes. There was child sacrifice, all kinds of ugly, ugly things. And Israel was constantly tempted by these false gods. And at this point in the story, 1 Samuel chapter 7, Israel has fallen into disobedience and the people in mass are worshiping false gods. They had coveted the gods of the foreign nations. And so destruction came upon them through a group of people known as the Philistines. The Philistines were Israel's worst enemy. And because of the destruction that was coming from this army, Israel began to mourn. And when they began to mourn, they began to turn back to the Lord. They began to turn back to Yahweh. And the prophet Samuel came to them. They assembled as a nation. And this is what Samuel said to them. I'm starting in verse 3. Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, and he will save you from the hand of the Philistines. Here's a promise. This is a promise that God's going to provide rescue. You with me? Verse 4. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Got this picture? The people have assembled. Samuel is prophesying to them that if they'll, if they'll rid themselves of their idols, God's going to rescue them. And while they're assembled, the Philistines attack. Okay? It's a terrible scenario. But this is what the Bible says. 
Bible says God thundered with a great voice and threw the Philistine army into confusion and all of the Israelite people rushed out and quickly defeated the enemy. It was an immediate confirmation of God's promise to the people. God provided victory. Now, this is what happens next in the story. Samuel doesn't want the people to forget this miraculous rescue from Yahweh. And so Samuel placed a memorial stone. This is something we do to this day. We put up monuments. You know what I'm talking about? Like veterans' memorials, gravestones. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C., you see these monuments, right? Samuel put up a monument, and he called it Ebenezer. Excuse me. it when I cough at the best part. He named this stone Ebenezer and said, so far the Lord has helped us. The name Ebenezer means stone of help. So far the Lord has helped us. Here's what I want you to know. The antidote to coveting is remembering. The antidote to coveting is remembering. Why did Samuel put this big monument up and name it Ebenezer, the stone of help? Because he wanted the people of Israel to walk by that stone and remember that the Lord had helped them and had provided rescue when they were at their wit's end for how to defeat their enemies. You've got to remember. Do you remember what I told you to remember? Two Ps? What were the two Ps? You've got it. You guys are awesome. God provided God promises. If you want to build up your trust in God and stop coveting that stuff that you don't have and just live in this place of trust, you've got to constantly be remembering what God did for you in the past. You've got to keep looking back and say, hey, I, I, see, a, I see a miracle in my past. Okay, this morning I shared with you that we're facing a financial deficit. Do you know what I'm doing in my prayer time? I, I'm, I'm remembering three years ago when we desperately needed $45,000 to qualify for a loan from the bank and a stranger walked into this church and wrote a check for $45,000. I'm remembering two years ago when we were facing a, another budget deficit and we were at a point where we couldn't pay our bills. We thought we weren't going to pay our bills. And a stranger walked into our church. They lived right over here. They were selling a house. And they said, as soon as our house sells, we'll tithe on our increase. And they wrote a check for $30,000. Whenever I get worried about money as a leader of a church, I just go back and I remind myself of the stories. I remember when we, when we were losing our lease over at the Jackrabbit property. And we had to go somewhere. We couldn't find any place else to rent. The last thing I wanted to do was build a building. And remember Jeff Nichols? God bless Jeff Nichols. He had the vision that maybe we needed to buy property and build a building. And, and he helped us find this place. And, and then we pulled together. And in two years, we, we put a building up so we had somewhere to meet. It was a miracle. 
It was a mirror. I, I remember those things again and again and again. Why? Because it helps me trust God now when I'm in a crisis of faith. The antidote to coveting is remembering. So the question for all of us is what can you do to help yourself remember the provision of God in the past. I'm going to give you an idea. In the seat pocket in front of you, or if you're sitting in the front, there's little scraps of paper and pens. Would you grab one of those scraps of paper? Now, don't write just yet, because I'm going to give you some detailed instructions, and then, then I'll cut you loose. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to bring some stuff to our memories. I'm going to ask the Lord to speak to us, okay? And what I'm going to ask you to do is write on that scrap of paper a time in your past when you know God provided for you. It could be a miraculous provision. It could be an everyday provision. It might be, I just, I just made it through a crisis. I don't know what it'll be for you, but when we pray, God's gonna speak to you, and I wanna encourage you to write the first thing that comes to your mind on that slip of paper. And then what I'm gonna ask you to do is put that piece of paper on an Ebenezer stone or in an Ebenezer stone. And here's where you have a choice. We've got a whole bunch of Ebenezers out here and these rocks have cracks in them. And what I want to invite you to do is take your piece of paper, roll it up, fold it up, and you can go and stuff it into the cracks of one of those Ebenezer stones out in front of the building. Or if you want to take it home and, and put it in an Ebenezer stone you have at home, um, maybe you have something. Kelly, when you were growing up, you had a, your family had a geode, and you would put these kinds of things into your geode. Okay, so it's your choice if you want to leave it here at one. But the point is, every time you walk by that stone, you're going to remember God did this for me in the past. And because he provided plenty in the past, I know he promises plenty for the future and he's going to come through for me. You understand what I'm asking you to do? Okay, pray with me and then I'll let you write. Jesus, First of all, I want to say thank you for providing for us in the past. You've been good to us. Many of us today are struggling. We're struggling. We're facing fears and attacks, struggles. But today we're going to remember so that we can trust you and stop coveting. And I pray, Lord, that you will use these Ebenezer stones to remind us every single week that you are faithful and we can trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now here's what we're going to do. First thing that comes into your mind, write it down. And then if you want to go out and stuff it into one of our Ebenezer stones, you're welcome to do that. Uh, we're going to open up the garage doors to make travel out there easy. It might make it a little cold in here for a minute. And then we're going to worship together. We'll have some prayer time. Uh, 
If you need to leave at any point uh, in the next few minutes, you're welcome to do that, but I hope you'll stick around because we're going to see what God does. I think maybe there will be some times of prophecy, some encouragement. We're going to see what God says, what God does in here. So I hope you'll stick around for a while because we're going to worship for a while, pray together. Got it? But uh, for the next five minutes or so, you can uh, write and stuff it into the rocks. Okay, go ahead and open those garage doors.